It is a thrilling thing to be able to uh, share that kind of news. And we are expectant of God's continued work and provision. We are in a series called Believing God, Stories of Faith from the Old Testament. And I want us to go back into the book of Ezekiel, as this is where we were last week in Ezekiel 36. Today, we're going to be in Ezekiel 37. And really what I want to do today is tell you three stories, share with you three stories. The first story will come from Ezekiel 37. We'll put these stories together at the end of our time this morning. Here's what happens in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and Tendons and flesh appeared on them and and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken And I have done it, declares the Lord. 
And as we read last week in 36, we were remembering that when Ezekiel speaks these words, he's speaking them to a vast array of people. These are the words that are reaching certainly those who are in exile already. They're already in Babylon. They've been taken out of their land of Israel and resettled. They've been told what to do. They're no longer in charge of their lives. And the Lord had already told them through the prophet Jeremiah, I want you to live there. I want you to settle down. I want you to build homes. I want you to plant vineyards. I want you to live life. And I want you to be there among the people of Babylon. And they're doing, they're doing the best that they can. But as they think back to the songs that they used to sing when they sat by the streams in Israel and in Judah, they can't help but have a feeling of sadness overwhelm them. And so they're in exile, and some of them are back in Jerusalem still and waiting to be carried off, perhaps, as they hear this message. And Ezekiel himself, a a priest, has now been made a prophet as he speaks. And sometimes there are very harsh things that Ezekiel has to say, some things that cut right to their heart. It's a heart that even is described as a heart of stone. But he's prophesying and preaching to people who are just completely discouraged. They can't imagine that there's ever going to be a life like they've had before. The good days have passed. The, The good works and the powerful stories that we've heard about what God has done, those are in the past. That That's how God used to be. That's what life used to be like. They don't feel any hope. But it's God who swoops down and takes Ezekiel and puts him down in a valley. Sometimes the good things, as many times as the Lord appears to his people on a mountaintop, there are times that he appears to his people in a valley. Because he's the God of the mountains and he's the God of the valleys and he takes Ezekiel to a valley and he speaks to him. God gives this vision to Ezekiel. Catherine Dar writes, Surely in the light of Judah's collapse, Jerusalem's destruction, the temple in ruins, the exile's own situation and Ezekiel's past denunciations of the people. Good news was for many hard to hear and well nigh impossible to envision. I think many of us can relate to those words. Given our lives and when we look back perhaps and we see what we consider golden years of our lives, the good days of faith, the days that we walked with the Lord in the land of the living, and now we look at our circumstances, whatever we find ourselves in today, and we we see what Ezekiel sees. We see a valley of dry bones, skeletons scattered out through the valley. And good news can be hard to hear. In fact, as Dar writes, it can be well nigh impossible to envision. How will it ever be any different? 
I feel pretty confident that there are some among us today who come in with that kind of perspective. How can my life ever be any different? Maybe you even look back and, and can still see days that you walked closely with the Lord and you want those days back, but you, you wonder if you'll ever be able to come back to that place. From Ezekiel's perspective, the way that he sees the valley, the bones are dry and lifeless. The exiles agree with this. As 37 verse 11 says, the bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. That's how we feel sometimes. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We're cut off. What happened to life? What happened to the promise that I felt three months ago, three years ago, ten years ago? What happened to that promise? What happened to the promise that I felt last week? So this is what Ezekiel sees. He sees dry bones. He he sees lifelessness, just death. But from God's perspective, when he sees this, The bones are alive. The bones are connected. They're covered. They're resurrected. They are breathing beings. This is what God sees. So really what is happening here is God is calling Ezekiel to see with him what he sees. And prophesying to the dead bones, think about this, he is told prophesy to these dead bones speak to the bones speak to the bones that are rattling speak to the bones that are just lying there speak to these bones that are dry and it takes a great step of faith to talk to something that's dead and this is what Ezekiel does he speaks to the death it requires Ezekiel to take on God's vision for the situation. To set aside his own vision and to accept God's vision for this scene. God is calling on Ezekiel to have faith, to see that these bones are not in their current state going to stay this way. He needs him to see not what really is happening in front of him, but to see beyond that to what these bones could be, what they will be by the power of God. It's the same for us today. As you sit and you assess your own situation, and if your situation looks like this and is dry and lifeless, a reminder, which is what the skeleton does. The skeleton simply reminds us of what used to be alive, but is dead now. It is gone. It is no more. It's just a remnant of what used to be. A sorry reminder. And maybe what we are called to do is is to look at our own situation, our own circumstances, and with Ezekiel, see our our circumstances not for what they are presently but for what God wants to do in them and with them and through them to see what is not yet 
present. This really, truly is vision. It's the vision that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4 with Abraham, who believed in the God who called things that are not as though they were. That's what's happening here. And so in verse, verses 7 to 10, when Ezekiel prophesies to the bones, do you see what happens? God reverses the decomposition process. Because when a body dies, the skin goes, the muscles go, the ligaments go, and then you're left with bone, and the bones are separated because there's nothing holding them together anymore. And so when Ezekiel prophesies and God begins to work in these bones, he attaches them bone to bone. Imagine the bones looking for each other. If this is a valley of dry bones and they're just kind of scattered, imagine the bones hopping up and they're looking for each other. A tibia and a fibula are looking for a femur, and they're going, wait, wait, wait. Oh, yeah, they're, uh, nope, you're not mine. And here they come, and they're starting to get together again, and now tendons connect these bones. And then flesh grows over the bones, and then skin wraps tightly the flesh. And now you've got a body. And the decomposition has been reversed, because that's what God does. He reverses the curse of brokenness and darkness and sin in the world. And now you've got a body, but they still don't have life. And so he says to Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to the breath. Now, in Hebrew, the word for spirit and the word for breath and the word for wind have the same roots. And so when he says, I want you to call on the breath, it sounds like spirit. And when you call on the four winds, it sounds like spirit. And when you call on the spirit, it sounds like breath and wind. And so call on the breath. And the breath comes and it animates and fills these bodies. And they become alive. And not only do they become alive, they're not just a bunch of individuals running around on their own. But he makes them into a vast army for the purposes of God, for the glory of God. This story is not about a vision of God. It's about, Catherine Dar says, God's vision. Taking on God's vision. This is what believing God means. This is what having faith means. And he says to them in 12 to 14, I will open your graves. You've, you've put it in the past. You have buried it. You have thought, no more. This is done. Can't get, any, can't get any better. There's no life left in this marriage. There's no life left in my willpower. I'm going to be enslaved to this addiction. There's, there's no way that I'll ever be able to overcome this bitterness. There's no way I'll be able to forgive this person. There's no way we'll be able to salvage this. And he says, I will bring you back and I will put my spirit in you, you will become a great army. And finally, and this is the great purpose, you will know that I, the Lord, have done it. Remember last week when he says to them, I'm going to restore you, but I'm going to restore you for the sake of my holy name and for the nations. It's like God is saying to them, I'm going to save you. 
But I'm not just saving you for you. I'm saving you for me, and I'm saving you for others. I'm saving you so that you would have a testimony to speak to other people so that they too would know that I am the Lord. Salvation is so great that it's not just for you as an individual. It is for you, for the glory of God, and it is for you, for the purpose of the nations and the people around you. And here he says, I'm going to make you into an army for my purposes. What if you have skin and flesh and bone and breath? but your life isn't new. Story number two comes from one of my favorite books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. Uh, the Dawn Treader is the story of the Pavenzi teenagers, Edmund and Lucy. And they are pulled into the world of Narnia because this is what happens with Narnia. People from our world are pulled into Narnia by the great lion, the Christ figure in the stories in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan. And they're always pulled into Narnia when Aslan the lion has a mission for them. And they fulfill their mission, and then they're sent back to our world. And the Pevensey children have been pulled into this with their cousin, Eustace Scrub. It's a wonderful name. And it really fits the character. So while the Pevensey children, Edmund and Lucy and their brother and sister Peter and Susan, have been in, in, on display in the other stories of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian, in this story, really, it centers on Eustace Scrub. Eustace is about as wholesome as his name sounds. He's spoiled, he's selfish, he's whiny, he's cynical, he's rude, he's critical, he's pessimistic. He distrusts everyone but himself. He only thinks of himself. He's out for himself. Certainly, Edmund and Lucy could have wondered, like, why did Aslan call him into this world too? We would be better off without Eustace Scrub. I mean, it sounds like useless. That's what he feels like to Edmund and Lucy. And they're called into the world of Narnia to travel with the Narnian prince, Caspian, and his sidekick mouse, Reepicheep, the small little character with great faith in the stories. And they go searching for the five lost lords of Narnia. So they're on this ship. There's the picture of the book that I actually have. Uh, here's, there's, they're on the Dawn Treader with this crew, with Prince Caspian, and they have been thrust into this mission of discovery, this, this search operation to find these lost lords and to take them back to Narnia, or at least discover where they've gone. And the ship and its crew for 12 days have been in the midst of a storm, and finally the storm breaks and now they're just drifting. There's no wind, and the, the Dawn Treader's just drifting at sea, they're running out of food, they're running out of water, there's, they're broken pieces, the mast is broken, and so they're trying to ration the food in the water. Eustace really doesn't like rationing because it's not good for Eustace. He tries to sneak at night and get a little extra water or food for himself. After all, he's a bit frail and he's a bit sick, and if they just knew how sick he was, they would understand and want him to have their portions of the food and water. So he sneaks around trying to forge for himself a little bit more sustenance. 
He doesn't like to work. He doesn't like to help. And when they finally run aground on an island here for just a little bit, they, they decide, well, this is our chance to get out on this island and to collect water and to collect food and to get some wood to restore the mast and other repairs that need to be made because of the storm. So everybody's working for that end except Eustace. He doesn't really want to work. So he wanders around the island and he wanders through this foggy forest and the mountains and he discovers after he gets through the fog that he's lost his way. He doesn't really know where he is. He's really thirsty and he's really tired. He sees a pool of water and he decides, I'm going to go get some, some water. I've got to get some drink. And as he's running towards this little pool of water, he sees something emerging from a cave nearby. Eustace, uh, according to the narrator, has not really read much books, so he doesn't realize that what's crawling out of the cave is a dragon. If he'd been up on his literature, he would have known the dragon as soon as he saw it, but he doesn't know a good dragon when he sees one. So he doesn't know that this dragon is actually dying and finally puffs out its last billows of smoke from its nostrils right in front of the water and the pool, and it dies. Eustace goes over and pokes the dragon. He's trying to figure out if it's still alive, just making sure. Ah, it's thoroughly dead. He gets a drink of water, and about that time, it begins to rain heavily. It's downpour. So, he runs into the dragon's lair and discovers a mound of treasure. What else would be in a dragon's lair, right? And he's lying on top of crowns and rings and bracelets and coins and dishes and gems and he's thumbing through this and picking it up in his hands and it's just clanging and clanking and he realizes this is valuable so he begins to slip things on he slips a bracelet on his arm and he stuffs his pockets and he's thinking to himself how can I get as much of this treasure back to the dawn treader as possible without the others knowing about it and how might I come back and get some more later? Just treasure for himself. And in the midst of this, with all the hiking, with the rain, Eustace falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he realizes that inside this dragon lair, he is now lying beside and in between two dragons. A dragon on his left and a dragon on his right. And these dragons are mimicking his every movement. He moves his right arm, the dragon moves its right arm in the same motion. He moves his left arm, the dragon moves its left arm in the same motion. He turns his head and he wonders, where's the dragon's head? Finally, in a panic, with this great fright, Eustace decides to bolt from the lair and he heads for the exit of the cave and he runs and as he's running he realizes I'm running on all fours what is uh, what's going on here and he gets to the pool where he thinks he's going to I don't know be safe somehow maybe dragons don't like to get in the water and he gets to the pool and he looks and sees his reflection and C.S. Lewis writes sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart Eustace had become a dragon himself. And he cries. 
And he lifts his great dragon wings and he flies off and he finds the dawn treader and, and he lights on the ground and he stays his distance. Tears, dragon tears coming out of his eyes. The crew sees them and Caspian and, and Edmund and Loosely come to attend to him. They're trying to figure out what should we do. And then they realize he's harmless and he's even sad. And after some time, they realize the dragon is useless. So for days, they're trying to figure out what should we do here? What could we do to, to help Eustace be undragoned? How do you undragon anyone? And so while they're trying to figure this out, Eustace, in his own dragon mind, begins to see that it was not his cousins, Edmund and Lucy. It was not Prince Caspian or the Captain Drinian or the Don Treader crew that had been beastly. He was the beastly one. And now he had become a beast. Eustace simply looked like the dragon he already was. And one night, the great lion Aslan appears to the dragon Eustace. And he says, follow me. Eustace follows him reluctantly and is led to a well where there's crystal clear water. And the great lion Aslan says, undress and then get into the water. So Eustace realizes that what he means is, take off my dragonness. So he claws and he scrapes and he thrashes at his dragon skin. And finally, like a snake that is molting, it comes off in one piece and is lying there. And he begins to get into the water and realizes just that quick that it's grown back. So he scrapes and he claws and he scratches and it comes off a second time. And just like that, before he can get in the water, it's back again. He does it a third time and he realizes, every time I claw this stuff off, it comes right back. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I had done myself the other three times. Only when I did it, it didn't hurt. This hurt. And then he caught hold of me in my bare skin and he threw me into the water. And once he's in the water, splashing about, refreshed, he realizes he's become a new boy. He's a new boy with his body, but a new inside. A new mind, a new heart, a new attitude. The dragon flesh has been taken off and his flesh has been restored. There's one more story of flesh that we need to close with. 
And it's the story of flesh that we sang about today and even read about at the table. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of the Son of God coming in the flesh to broken humanity, a humanity that is a dragon in opposition to God, cursed by our own self-consumption and ambition, our own self-centeredness, our own greedy, dragonish thoughts. The thing is that in our own self-will, we dry, we rot, and so we're like a valley of dry bones. Dry bones and dragons need to be resurrected. There's got to be death, but it's got to be the right kind of flesh put back on it. And the only one who can do that is the one who took flesh on himself, and that is the Son of God. It's only Jesus who comes along. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. How do we know that God wants to change the world? How do we know that God wants to change us? How do we know that God wants to change my circumstances? How do we know that God really wants to change me on the inside, to give me a new heart and a new mind and a new outlook on life. How do we know that God loves us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Does he love humans? He became one. Does God love this material world, this human world of bone and blood and flesh? Intendants. The one through whom the material word was created entered the world and became material creation. The one who formed flesh from the earth walked the earth in the flesh he created. In Christ, the Son of God becomes human so that humans might become sons and daughters of God. Dry bones with flesh restored. Former dragons who've become people in the image of God. The Son of God becomes like a Son of Man. He takes on our flesh so that He can redeem and restore and renew us. He strips us of the flesh that is opposed to God, that thinks only of self, those dragonish thoughts. And He gives us a new identity that thinks of God first, restored to new life, that thinks of others, that begins to have the mind of the Son of God Himself. Will you believe God for new life today? That's really the question. Will you believe God for new life? If you go back to the Valley of Bones, you can't imagine things getting any better. Your life, a particular situation, you're the one who can fill in the blank, and you feel like you are in a valley of dry bones. You can't imagine those bones coming to life. You can't imagine yourself being restored. But what vision might God have for your life and your growth that he's calling you into to join his vision for your life rather than living in your own vision? What new thing might he want to do for the sake of his name 
what might he want to do through us as a church? If he resurrected them to become an army for his glory, might, what might he want to do for us as a church? You can't imagine getting past the character flaws and the sin and the destructive negative habits that hold you back that keep, keep you living like a dragon. You can't imagine a different kind of life. But Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh so that He and the power of the Spirit through the love of the Father might strip you of the selfishness and restore you to health and restore you to life. Only God can give life to you. Only God can call what is dead back into life. Only God can take off the old and give us the new. Only God. I'd invite you to stand with me. So what is the Spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind of God doing in you and your mind today as you think about where you are? Maybe you're resonating with this Ezekiel 37 passage and you're wondering, how can I get past this situation? How will this ever live again? How will these dry bones ever live? Maybe you imagine that I'm, you're too much of a dragon, that you've got too much going on in your life and that you'll never be able to get past it. Well, you're going to scrape and claw and scratch to try to remove those character defects from yourself but it's going to take our great king Jesus Christ to cut to the heart and to give you the new life and the new flesh that you're created for how do you need to respond to that we'll give you that opportunity our prayer teams are here and we'll sing together as you respond